Good morning to you all. Thank you for joining us this morning for worship. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Last week was the marathon of 2 through 5, and this week we're only doing one chapter. So you can take a big breath, ease, relax. But it's a significant chapter. Before we get there, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you haven't read that, you need to. C.S. Lewis gives us a picture of Jesus as lion. Early in the story, the, we meet Mr. and Miss, Mrs. Beaver attempting to describe Aslan to the kids who have stumbled their way into Narnia. And uh, I'll just read what Lewis writes. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, what? You don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in the Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. And what a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him to stone If she could stand on her two feet and look him in the face, I'll be most that she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, no. He'll put all to rights, as is said in the old rhyme of these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But but we shall see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. I'm going to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver. Sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, then most, or just plain silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king. God is good, friends. I love this story. God is good, but he isn't safe. He is loving, but God isn't tame. Second Samuel 6, this chapter this morning is all about God. And the point of this chapter is to make clear to us of God's complete holiness and justice and our sinfulness and disobedience. This is an important chapter in the life of King David, and and you'll be helped this morning if you have your Bible open. If you didn't come with a Bible, you're in luck by God's providence. We've supplied you Bibles. They're in the pews there, in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to take one home. Take that as a gift for you. We'll be on page 241. If you're unfamiliar, look in the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers of the Bible, and the small numbers that follow after are the verse numbers. So that will help you as we walk through 2 Samuel chapter 6. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust that we're driving at here this morning. Our greatest problem is answered by a Savior who gives us joy in the Lord. And I've developed an outline to kind of help you this morning. I think outlines are helpful, like, like mile markers along the highway to kind of give us to the next point. So there's four points that we'll go through this morning. Our need for God, our problem with God, our salvation is God, our joy in God. Second Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to read all of this chapter and then we'll walk through those four points. Verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, 
And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned in the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he, he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in his house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among the, all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to, his, to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, and as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of you who have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's word, and I pray we'd be encouraged as we listen and obey. First point this morning is our need for God. Right off the bat, chapter 6, we, we learn that David is, is showing us he needs God. He needs God's presence in his life, and we do too. David has already made a, a good and clear distinction if you're reading through this, this book between himself and the prior king, King Saul, as we read and as we read weeks earlier. As, as you read before David goes off to war or before he moves to a new place, where does he go first for guidance? Just look back in chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 19. We didn't look at this last week. I encourage you to read on your own. But David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So before David does anything, he goes to the Lord. So right off the bat, we, we learn that this new king is much different than the prior king. He desires to know God, to, to make God the director of his life and the kingdom. And so 6.1 is significant. It's significant in the day and the life of God's people. And David here gathers his chosen men, 30,000 people. Have you ever been in a place with 30,000 people? Seahawks game, right? I don't know if that's the case this season, but, you know, lots of people. And, and where's, I mean, from that number, you think, where is he going? Is he going to war? It sounds like it, right? 
But this isn't a war. This is a procession of praise as they go and they're going to get the ark and bring it into the city of David. And, and now what is the ark of the Lord? The narrator says it is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned in the cherubim. And what does the ark of the Lord represent? I went to some other resources to help. Daniel High in his book, God in Our Midst, writes this. The ark was important both for the Israelites and for us because it was the place of his presence, the place of propitiation, and the place of pleading. So I'm just going to use his outline here to walk through that briefly. So closely, as we read in the Old Testament, the ark is identified with God's presence that when the ark set out to lead Moses, it says in Numbers 10, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it is rested, the ark, it said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of thousands of Israel. So connected is the ark of the Lord to his presence. It, it, it's communicating to us that God was with us. And the ark of the, of the Lord doesn't mean that it was an image necessarily, but a sacrament of his presence. And so it signifies God's presence with God's people. It, it's interesting to me, and I think it's telling of who King Saul was, that after Israel recaptured the ark, and this is a fascinating story if you read back in 1 Samuel, Saul never goes to get it and bring it in his presence. He leaves it. He leaves it up for 20 years, and there's no ark of the Lord. That's significant. I think Saul knew something of himself. He didn't want to be in the presence of God. And, and Saul also didn't know his need for propitiation. And that's the second thing it signifies. Propitiation is a big theological word. It, it really means satisfaction in our relation to God. Because of our sins, we are separated from God and there needs to be propitiation, satisfaction. Psalm 85, one through three, gives us this imagery. Lord, you were favorable to our land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. If we're to go back into the book of, of Exodus 25, you can read the de detailed instructions for how the, the lid of the ark of the Lord was to be made. And in our Bibles, it's called the, the place of propitiation or it's called the mercy seat. And there, there are many sacrifices for the people of God. But one time a year when sacrificial blood was offered in the mercy seat to bring propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God, do us because we're sinners. That was the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 talks about that. Propitiation was made by the means of a substitutionary sacrifice. And so to tie this up, when God is in their presence and propitiation is made, third, they could plead to God in prayer. We see this in so many of the Psalms, particularly those Psalms 60 through Psalm 85. Psalm 79, let me read this one in particular, where the psalmist is pleading to God. He says, do not remember against us our former iniquities, our sins. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us. O oh God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. And all of this, we, we learn that the ark of the Lord was significant piece of furniture to God and his people. So it, it should be incredible to read of David's desire to have that place back into the midst of God's people. By doing this, David is speaking to God's people that God must be at the center of our life. Again, making a huge distinction between Saul. No longer are we going to live this way. God will be at the center of our life. 20 years the ark had been gone, but no longer is that to, to be the case. And so David, right off the bat, is communicating to the people and to us our need for God in our life but we begin to see a big problem here in this story in verses three and four. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. That's where it was from 1 Samuel 6, sitting there for 20 years. And 
Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Ohio's in the front, Uzzah's in the back. What we read here is David is allowing someone else to make the decision how the ark of the Lord is to be transported, how it's to be treated. And we quickly learn there's something about God that we don't understand, or simply we've forgotten. And that leads to my second point, our problem with God. Friends, one of your greatest problems, one of our greatest problems in all of us, is not out there. Our greatest problem is not the world, it's not other sinners, it's not the economy, it's not liberal Washington State, it's not politicians, it's not celebrities, it's not the news media. Now, we shouldn't ignore the enemies outside. I'm not saying that. It's not we should just check out or put our hand, head in the sand. I'm not saying that. But we must never let our lives be absorbed by them. And I think that's the hazard that we as Christians suffer with right now. Our greatest enemy, our greatest problem is not out there. It's in here. It's inside each and every one of us. I mean, it's easy to think that all the issues are outside of us. It's definitely more comfortable, right? The light shines and on us, we want to be like, yeah, no, I'm going to turn that so it's on someone else. It's a lot more comfortable. It's more convenient to see all the enemies around us, that they're the issue in my life. All the while ignoring the greatest issue, unbelief, ignorance, a casualness with God. A know-it-at-allness that is wicked. And we become, and, and we are susceptible to, to tame God. Friends, God cannot be tamed. God isn't safe for humans. God isn't safe for humans. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This, this had to be loud, 30,000 chosen men and the house of Israel, so there's more than 30,000. And they're celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing instruments. This was a celebration. The ark of the Lord was now back with God's people. This is significant. This is the most significant thing that's happened in two decades. This is huge. Right? I mean, yesterday there was a baseball game that lasted for like seven hours after two decades of having no baseball in October. Mariners played, if you don't know. Two games yesterday. Anyways, two decades, right? It was significant. This is the same thing, but even more. The Ark of the Lord's been gone for 20 years. This is huge. And, and verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took hold of it, for the oxen that was pulling the cart stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of the God. Just want to make sure you're awake. It's startling, right? celebrations happening that's loud and all of a sudden the gasps what happened you know eyes are 30,000 people they're they're trying to figure out and they see now that that us is laid out can you imagine at this point the the screams of joy are now screams of horror someone call 911 there's there's an emergency what just happened here? What happened to Uzzah? Did he have a heart attack? Did, did he suffer some serious health issue? What's going on? And the narrator tells us exactly what happened. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, the God, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. It wasn't a heart attack. It wasn't other issues. God struck him down. 
Remember I said God cannot be tamed. And we cannot be casual with him. The God of this moment here in 2 Samuel 6 has not changed. It's the same God that sits enthroned in heaven above. It's the same God that we read in the New Testament. No matter what other people think, for the sake of their theology, God hasn't changed. He cannot change. And so how do we reconcile this? If we back up a bit in our Bibles and go into Numbers 4, the book of Numbers, chapter 4, we read that God had given the, the Kohathites, the priests, the job of looking after the holy things of God, like the ark, but it was a dangerous job, and God warns them in Numbers 4.20, they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. If anyone was around 20 years earlier when the ark was brought back, you would have seen that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So their first error was that before the ark of the Lord was to be moved, the priests needed to cover it. They don't. The second error was that God had plainly stipulated that it was to be carried, not moved on a cart. That was in Numbers chapter 7. These, these were for practical purposes, but also notice, that I, I believe it's for spiritual purposes. The priests were to carry the ark of the Lord, the very presence of God, above, on their shoulders, above the people. There were two poles that went through the, the, three, the rings at the bottom of the ark, and these poles would then be at shoulder length. And so the picture would be seeing that of how an earthly king is brought into town above the shoulders, carried up, and people cheer. He, he, they're recognizing he's, he's above. And I think what God's doing, he's showing us, God is above his people. He isn't tame. God isn't like us. But that's not what happens. We read in verse 3, they were driving it on a new cart. Where did they get at that idea? Shamefully, they got it from the Philistines. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 6, after they were capturing the ark and they were then terribly tormented by the ark, they get rid of it and they send it back on a cart with no people, like an ox taking it, just go, just leave. They want it out of their presence, and they send it on a cart. And so Israel here, David, Abinadab, all the above, think, let's bring it out on a cart. God's way, God's word had been ignored, and Uzzah pays the price. The ark city upon an ox cart driven into town and when it comes to the threshing floor, the ox stumbles and Uzzah naturally reaches out to, to steady the ark so it doesn't fall into the ground. And God's word to God's people clearly states on how the ark was to be transported and they underestimate God's holiness and they believe that God can be domesticated. That God is just like us. Our true and sovereign God is trustworthy. We hold to that promise in times of suffering. It's true. God is trustworthy and he's sovereign. And he is true to all of his word. Friends, you can count on that. When God says he will do something, he will do it. And God said, if you do this with the ark of the Lord, you will die. Friends, God cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness exposes sin and his wrath opposes sin. Sin cannot approach God and God cannot tolerate sin. And God will deal with sin in God's way. And God deals with the sin of Uzzah and he dies. But as you read this story, if you, as you hear it being read this morning, does this God offend you? I read it to my kids this week, and the eyes went 
It's unsettling. If you haven't read it before, do you find this passage unsettling or even scary? And perhaps, just being genuine, do you find God repulsive? I mean, there's many sins that lead up to Uzzah reaching out to touch the ark. There's other areas where they failed. And yet, God deals with Uzzah. I mean, why didn't God just look into Uzzah's heart and see that his motive was pure? That he's just wanting to be helpful. That he's wanting to serve the Lord. I mean, this day of all days, right, the significance of what's happening, 30,000 chosen men and everyone else is out, and the, and the instruments is out, everyone's praising, and they're dancing. This is significant, and it's coming along, and here we have Ohio and Uzzah bringing the cart, and he doesn't want to be the guy that's like, yeah, I let it fall. I mean, he might have felt pressured in this moment. I, I've got I've to reach, I, gotta, I just want to make it better here. Let me just make it better. And perhaps that's how you're taking it. It goes against our sensibilities. It brushes hard against how we believe you should act in this world. And you say, you shouldn't act that way. And you're right. You're exactly right. You and I shouldn't act like that. When someone sins once, we shouldn't strike them dead. That is correct. But God is not like you. And he's not like me. Friends, Uzzah had forgotten that. Abinadab had forgotten that. David forgot that. You and I are not God. And for God to act in this way is perfectly in step with who he is and what he says he will do with sin. For God never to act against sin makes him a liar. God was with them, yes, but he was wholly different than them. God is God and we are not. Is that disturbing to you? Have you forgotten about that this week? Friends, you can't even take a breath without God giving it to you. God's word says that. You and I are utterly dependent upon God. And this passage teaches us that God will not be domesticated. And we have people out here living like they're the Tiger King, bringing lions and tigers into their house. I'm going to tame them, just going to be little animals. And you read about stories. Just so you know, you shouldn't buy a lion to have it as a pet. They're not made for that. People foolishly think that. And people are doing the same thing with God. You know, for me, stories like this in the Bible give further clear evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the Bible. Because we would have never invented a God like this if it was up to us. Not if you want to win people over. This God is not marketable to the world. And to think of God of not being holy and just and wrathful against sin, that's how we would go, and that's not a God of the Bible. That's a God made from our own desires and our own wants. And so why does a story like this bring out feelings of unfairness and conflict with God. It's partly because sin does not provoke us to anger. And so we assume 
that sin does not provoke God to anger. Uzzah's act here was not an act of heroism. His act was arrogance. Why? Well, if you haven't already, you need to read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Furthermore, just Google that into YouTube. You can see a young R.C. teach about this. And he says this, quote, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But the earth was an obedient creature. The earth does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield and its season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason against God. But you have. And so have I. Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was a sinner, and God dealt with his sin. You and I, friends, have committed cosmic treason against a holy God. You and I have believed and embraced and loved to think that we are ultimately in control of our lives. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, I wonder if this story is shocking to you. Does it surprise you that we as Christians don't think people are naturally good? We believe, based upon the Bible, that every single human being on planet Earth is sinful to their core. We believe simply that there is something broken in every human. We are curved in on ourselves. It's the nature of sinfulness to look at God and his word and to say, I have every right to decide how I want to live my life. Not God. And this is the life of everyone who's not trusting in Jesus for salvation. That's why there should be a distinction between those that call themselves Christians, little Christ, following him, and those that aren't. You may think you're a good person. You may think you have good motives and pure motives for how you, how you live and how you think and how you work, but you're fooling yourself like Uzzah. You cannot be good enough to save yourself. See, one of the great tensions in the Bible is that you cannot live with God and yet you cannot live without him. For all my friends here, Christian or not, do you realize afresh this morning what a problem it is for a holy God to love a people like us? Or are you just casual now with him? Does that surprise you? It is a problem for a holy God to love you because you're not holy. It is a problem for a holy God to love me because I still sin. You picture God as this ambivalent grandfather-like character who's easygoing, he's easy with the flow. It's no big deal. It's all right. I, I love you. It's okay. We'll sort it all out at the end. The Bible teaches us that there's this huge cavern between God and between us. And it was only crossed by the man Christ Jesus, who came to die as a substitute. Friends, our understanding, the difference between God and us, is the beginning 
of useful wisdom for your life. We must understand this. Otherwise, you won't understand salvation. You won't understand your need for salvation. There's this gigantic cavern, this, this huge space between us and God. And if we cannot save ourselves, and if, and if we cannot live without God, and yet we can't live without God, what other recourse do we have? What can we do about this? Well, friends, the Bible speaks about that as well. God sent his only son down to earth to take on our sins, the sins of his people, and to die for them. And now we're called to turn from ourselves, trusting ourselves, and turn to God and trust in him alone. And friend, if you've never done this, you need to understand that one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why we gather each week is so that the preacher up here behind the pulpit can explain that. Because as Christians, that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our joy. That's what what makes it worth it to come on Sundays, to be, again, reminded again that we're saved. Because if you're walking with the Lord and you're reading your Bible, you're coming to this conclusion every single day, man, I'm a sinner. I, I can't quite get it all perfectly. And that's when the gospel says, but Christ came and died for you. So friends, you need to understand, we will preach the gospel as the Lord gives us strength and breath. But you come and sit under and hearing the gospel is so that you would turn from your unbelief and turn to him and follow him. So I want to encourage you, if you have questions, I love questions. I know the other pastor, elders here would love to talk with you these questions. They're good questions. But our hope is that you would come to know Jesus. And not just make a decision and then go back to life as you please. That's not salvation. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It's that a revolution is your, your life. You change. Not because of you and how great you are. Because how God works in your life and through your life. Well, Uzzah is dead. This was traumatic. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. It's interesting, I won't go into details, but this broken out against Uzzah is the same phrase that he uses at the end of chapter 5 that we didn't talk about, how the Lord broke out against the Philistines. David's anger here is not said to be directed at God, so don't land there but because of the breaking out against Uzzah. The difference matters because because David hates what happened. It doesn't mean he hates the Lord. I believe, and David's vantage point, he's deeply troubled by what occurred. But he doesn't disregard God or turn away from him. Ultimately, we will see what happens. But he was troubled. I'm sure he feared the Lord. You know, in in chapter 5, David's thrilled when, when God breaks out against the Philistines. He's happy when his enemies have a holy God deal with them. And now he's terrified that it landed with his people. And he's fearful. He's fearing God. This is exactly what, what Samuel charged the people of God as a newly introduced king earlier in 1 Samuel 12. He says in 1 Samuel 12, 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Friends, the fear of the Lord is the right foundation for the human life. But fear is not only response. Trusting in God is the next natural step after fear. And we read how David responds if he sends the ark away. And just to, again, to put yourself in the position in the midst of celebrating 30,000 people and now realizing that Uzzah died because he touched the ark, they, they realize, what are we going to do with this thing? You know, looking at the ark of the Lord and seeing a dead body, they're thinking, this is like toxic. 
or it's so hot, I don't want to touch it. And so the discussion, I can imagine this discussion. You want it? I don't want it. You want it? Let's just give it to this guy. Obed, Edom, and the Gittite. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. It's like, where does the porta potty need to be installed? Put it in his backyard. No one wants it. No one wants to be around it because he just saw the effects of it. Interesting to note, and I won't land here. You can spend more time. Obed Edom means servant of Edom. And Gittite is a very surprising person here. It normally means someone from the Philistine town of Gath. So was Obed Edom a Philistine who had come over to David to serve him? We don't know. You can spend time on that if you want. The answer's not in the Bible. But maybe that's why David chose him. I don't know. So we've seen our need for God. We've seen our problem with God. Now the answer is God. When David realizes, this is third point, when David realizes he cannot be in the presence of God without some intervention, he sends the ark away, afraid. But as we will read, God's desire was not to destroy a people, but to bless a people. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord, ark of God. David hears of what has transpired in Obed-Edom, and he finally realizes that God is for him and not against him. That he isn't there, in fact, to destroy his people. But they need to approach him the way that God's instructed. So David went and brought up the ark of the God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This is part two, another celebration. It's happening like it just did before. But, verse 13, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. This is not like before. Things have changed. There's no mention of a cart. They bore the ark of the Lord, meaning they carried the ark of the Lord in. And this time, can you imagine the trepidation of those having it? That's good. It's right. After six steps, they sacrifice an animal. Okay, this is different. This is different than the last time. Hold on one second. Now, this account seems to suggest that David possibly personally carried out the sacrifices. That would be surprising since normally the priest did such things. The significance of these sacrifices were to be understood from the laws of the Leviticus back into God's word. They're to make atonement. And David remembers three months ago what happened to Uzzah because of his error. And he begins to question, right? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And now the question is answered only through atonement. How can sinners like us ever stand in the presence of God? Only through atonement. David didn't understand the seriousness of sin before, but David understands now. Now we need to understand, if you go back in the Old Testament, that when these offerings were made, you would put your hand on the offering and identify it with it. And then you would slay it, and then you would burn it. And when you did this, you are saying, in effect, this should be me. This is because of me. I should be utterly destroyed. I should be killed. I should be burned. But someone else takes my place. This was not some just casual thing they just did to get it over. Let's check the box. No, this was significant. And you need to see this, friends. Our, how, the, how the answer to our greatest problem is answered by a Savior who then gives us joy. See, David is looking through a glass darkly here, not really understanding all that's going to transpire in the future. But what he did understand was that for him to come in the presence of God was not through his own good work. Someone else would have to be destroyed for him. Many years later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we, it would teach us this. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. See, here, what we read, David figures that out. David goes back into the word of God to recognize there needs to be a substitute. God is serious about his word. God is serious about how we approach him and how we interact with him. And he remembers what God's word said about atonement. And he follows the word of God. And God doesn't strike them dead. They celebrate. Rejoicing. Can you imagine the rejoicing now? The the ark of the Lord can be in our midst. But only through the way that God has designated it. And what we read later, and we won't go through all these verses, David, David dons the wardrobe of a, of a priest here, setting aside the royal robes. He removes those, and, and, and it suggests that his royal status was subordinated to his role as God's servant and servant to God's people. And he puts on this linen ephod. This is important because it gets to our fourth point, our joy in God. Three times in the last few verses of our chapter, Michael is mentioned as the daughter of Saul. When the Bible tends to repeat itself, you should pause and ask, why? I believe this is the narrator's way of saying there's going to be a difference, again, between Saul and David. Verse 16, and as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. If you remember back in 1 Samuel, maybe you should read 1 Samuel. I keep mentioning that, but it'll help you in 2 Samuel. But David, or that Michael loved David. She put herself in considerable danger when Saul had lost his mind and was so paranoid he was going after David, she saves him. Interesting story. Puts an idol in the bed. Len mentioned this week, she had that pretty quickly. What's going on with Michael? But she puts this in there to fool Saul, and David escapes. So there was at one point this relationship that was good. But as we read last week, after David runs, Saul gives it to another man, and, and David now insists on her return. And now we hear the last words spoken by Michael in this book. And perhaps we can learn something from her response to David. If you jump down to verse 20 through 23, Michael is seen here as a very miserable person. Those that are caught in pride usually are. She speaks with such sharp sarcasm. Verse 20, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I mean, do you just hear the dripping disgust that she has towards him? Maybe it's just me. I I hear it. She looks out the window and, and David, David's not the king she's used to. David's not her dad. He's a different kind of king, seeking a different kind of glory. And it disgusts her. The dignity, power, and splendor of the king were too important to the daughter of Saul. And it didn't seem as important to David. It was a perverse thing for her to say this to David. David casting off his royal garb as she sees it. And she calls it in this coarse, sexual terms. This is wicked and vile, what she says of David here. David had not uncovered himself. If you think that David was naked, he wasn't. He just took off those royal robes and put on a linen ephod in favor of this. Significant, and we'll get there why. 
It would be like um, running in to the King of England in London, and he's in his pajamas. Have you ever observed what he wears, what he will wear in May when they coronate him as king? It's not what I wear, okay? I'll just stay there. It's significant. It's royal. And she sees this, and she couldn't stomach it. She cared about the fame of an earthly king. And David cared about the fame of God. He didn't really think of himself as king, but as a servant leader of God's people. He's responding that, it, that it's really not about him. But the Lord had chosen him to serve his people. Do you remember last week? David made that recognition. He, he, he did this, and this angers Michael. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on these, few, these uh, passages, these verses, and he called it, David dancing before the Lord because of his election. I love that title. Spurgeon says, I was elected. I was utterly chosen by grace. Therefore, I have to dance. Talking of David. See, the killing of Uzzah and the blessing of Obed-Edom showed David that salvation was utterly by grace and he suddenly realized that his kingship was utterly by grace. Again, reminding himself that he was chosen. He was elected. He didn't do this. Where was he when he was selected? He was a boy out in the field, right? God didn't look and David said, man, he is really impressive. He was one of the fastest boys to be potty trained. I'm going to select him as future king. There was nothing in him. In fact, if you go back into 1 Samuel, I just keep saying that. when, When Samuel meets the family, right, they go through the whole line of brothers, and David's like, or God's like, nope, 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 nope. You still got one more. So there's nothing in David to think he's so fantastic. Friends, this is all of God. Just so you know, if you're saved, you didn't do it. And you're not so fantastic. Neither am I. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He elected you. That is of God's doing. And because David realizes, he can have self-forgetfulness about this. He knows he did nothing to get the kingship. This was all of God. And what we see is this response. I will not display that. You do not want to see me dance. Nor do I think it's appropriate, and I'll get to that too. Verse 21, it was before the Lord. He's responding to Michael, who chose me above your father and above all the house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before before the Lord. See, he chose me. And again, he's pointing to say, there's a difference between King Saul and this king. God chose me. And then he says in verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. He's talking about humility here. I will humble myself yet more. I will be different by God's help than the other king. I will humble myself. And he recognized my job as king was to point to him, to God. And she couldn't understand it, and she misses out on real joy. And she will sink in her pride. Now, I want to mention briefly, just in case you're thinking, should we have dancing here on Sunday mornings? I've heard this verse used before to support that we should have dancing in our gatherings. And as elders, we would say no. Why? Well, because we as elders speak on behalf of the congregation as a whole. And I believe, we believe, we teach, the congregation should be able to gather with the church every week since God commands us to do that and yet have their conscience remain free from being required to worship in a way that they might find troublesome or as a stumbling block. You are commanded to come worship. And so us as elders and pastors need to form a service in a way that does not go against your conscience. Unless the Bible explicitly says, and friends, we're seeking to follow the Bible. So we need to be aware of using the church's corporate gathering as a venue for self-expression. 
That's not why we gather. This, isn't, this service isn't for, for me and about my desires, and it's not about you and your desires, and we have to remind ourselves of that. I have to remind myself of that. This is not my church. This is not Jeff's church. I want you all to recognize that. Can you, like, nod? Or maybe even say amen. That's fine with me. This is his church. And I serve him. So this church shouldn't be how Jeff desires it to be. We're in trouble if that's the case. We want to be in obedience with God's word. And David is not sinning by dancing here. But he's also not giving us license as Christians today, as New Covenant believers, to allow this and to do this in our weekly gathering. If you want to dance at home for the joy of the Lord, friends, do that, please, for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, I've got to wrap things up. Last verse. It's an indication that David and Michael, well, there's a breach in their relationship. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What we learn, this is significant, the house of David would have no descendants of Saul within it. Saul would be finally and firmly cut off. God would choose someone else to bring the line. And we'll get into that in this book. Friends, if you look back over your life, do you see the patience of God? The mercy and patience and love of God should be just covered when you look back. We deserve instant judgment like Uzzah. We need to think about that. The mystery here is not that Uzzah died. It's that we are still alive. Are you struggling with the judgment of God in this passage? Why God judges people? Why God chose to judge Uzzah in this moment? Friends, if you run your car into a brick wall, you'll be destroyed. Is that unfair of the wall? No. So why will it be destroyed? Because the wall is being a wall. It doesn't move. If the wall is itself, and you try to drive your car into a wall, you will lose. The wall is being itself, and that's not unfair. Do you know ultimately what the sin of Uzzah was? He refused to take God as God is. He refused to treat God as God. And he paid the price. Are you refusing to look at God and to treat God as he really is? Are you looking in your life to make God into your own image? Something that you're comfortable with? Or do you seek to read and understand God as he says he is in his word? See, God is holy and we are not. I love thinking and talking about the ark of the Lord. It's been really encouraging this week, spending time thinking through that but it's no longer important to us. No matter how bad Indiana Jones wants to find it, it doesn't matter. The Lord provided the Israelites a place of propitiation on the ark's lid, and he still provides that place for us today. And it's not through the ark of the Lord. Do you know that place? That place is Jesus Christ. He offers himself to us. He's the only one that can turn away the wrath of God towards our sin. He cleanses us from all of our sins. He cancels them out. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. 
Let that bake your noodle this afternoon. He brings us in the presence of God, blameless and acceptable. And God can look at us, not with disgust, but with joy because of what Jesus Christ has done. Friends, your sins are serious. This chapter teaches us that. Your sins separate you from God. Uzzah had no concept of this when he reached out his hand. He had no idea how lost he was. He had no concept, really, of the fullness and how serious this situation was. And he had no concept of what unbelievably radical provision would have to happen to bridge this gap. That Jesus would come. Friend, confess your sins to him today. The sin of believing in yourself and that you can somehow do this and run to Jesus Christ. And what he did on the cross will satisfy, will be applied to you. It satisfied God's wrath toward your sins and you'll be saved. And then you'll be able to sincerely sing with us in a moment about the mercy of God because you'll finally understand that. And it'll be really comforting to you. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to your children. You call us to yourself and you give us faith to believe in you and you redeem us from our sins and you seal us in your spirit forever. We do nothing to be saved. It's all of you, God. We do not deserve you. And yet you chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless for your praise and glory. God, you are so good to your children. Help us this afternoon and this week to not take you lightly. Help us to know you from your word. Help us to not imagine you how we please but that we would submit our minds and our wills and our passions to you for your honor and glory. And now may you be glorified as we sing back to you, God, as a church. We thank you for your mercy. And we glorify you for all that you've done for us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.